Startle us, O God, by your grace. Startle us this day with your word for us. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and redeemer. Amen. Wings of eagles, feet of clay. The beginning of Isaiah 40 takes us immediately into the tragic loss of the people of Israel, of the structures and institutions that they had known so well. You'll remember that Isaiah 40 begins with the words, Comfort, comfort my people, speak tenderly to Jerusalem, and cry to her that she has served her term. Prepare the way of the Lord, make straight the desert, in the desert a highway for our God. The people have been dislocated from what is familiar for some 160 years between chapter 39's ending and chapter 40 beginning. And when one has been in exile for so very long, it plunges them into a place of brutal honesty that arises out of frustration. These people's existence was shattered. They are so far from the comfort and care that they have lost their steam. Theirs is a dislocation not only that is geographical, but a deportation of the structures of their very life from family and friends, ritual, temple, commerce, practice, all that is familiar even in their relationship with Yahweh, their God. Their very faith is in question. It might not have been exile, but it certainly was in a context of an unfamiliar culture that moved a seemingly friendly and easy dinner conversation into one where I found my own faith in question. It was a gorgeous evening in Costa Rica a few years back. My spouse Tom and I were guests of his cousin, whose architectural digest home sat up on a mountain in the cloud forest overlooking an expanse that extended miles. The sun was setting across the verdant landscape, blazing in its glory, sinking orange, then bittersweet, and then swallowed by the mountains to the west. That night, we were having, they were having their closest friends in for dinner. The wine was poured, the hors d'oeuvres set out, the soup and salad and crusty bread was waiting. Well, maybe the guests had tromped over familiar conversational territory so often together that having Tom, my husband, and myself in the mix gave them an opportunity to explore something that they didn't explore very often. That night, the topic was religion. Maybe it was the fact that most of the people at that table were far from their own home territory. Most of them had moved to Costa Rica looking for community, a setting where they could contribute to the well-being of the environment and culture. They were bound together by being people at the edge of the Costa Rican culture, of their own home culture, expats from the United States living abroad with no real explicit 
cultural home of their own. Some might call this a hyphenated cultural identity. I would say that it was akin to the exiles in Isaiah. They seemed to be people in search of a homeland. And my hunch is that the homeland was not only a geographical one, but a vocational homeland, a calling. And they were looking for something to define their lives. They were seekers. Well, that conversation that evening, in my experience, was actually quite predictable, though those at the table probably experienced it as unique. When they learned that I was a college chaplain, a Presbyterian one, the lone Presbyterian in the circle said that she had long since left her Christian roots and didn't really pay much attention to Christianity anymore. Well, all eyes were on my reaction, which was welcoming, open, listening. And when they didn't get judgment, the floodgates literally opened. Everyone at the table proclaimed their disdain for religion, for dogma, for institution, for anything that would smack of rules or telling them what to think. There was the injured Catholic, the spiritual but not religious ex-Protestant, the artist who said she couldn't get enough of crosses, not that she attached any personal religious significance to them, but she loved, as she, she explained, the symbolism of the intersection between heaven and earth, the vertical and the horizontal. But that night, it was Teresa, who, to that point, sat quietly across the table from me. I had been apprised of the fact that she had lost her husband a few months earlier, and she and her husband had retired to Costa Rica in their late 30s, having made a pile of money in the Silicon Valley boom of the 90s. He died, and she was left with a gaping hole punched by this loss that left her depleted, indeed in exile from all that delivered her goodness, ease, and joy. She was the one with the real questions, and she didn't hesitate to ask. With something of an attitude, she fired a question at me. What do you do as a chaplain? Subtext, are you there to convert students? Well, I admit that I was a bit put off by her edge, even though I understood her grief and loss, of course, and needed to be attentive to that. So as I do often when I am put on the spot, I respond rather nonchalantly. I said in my most low-keyed and easy conversational way, I have the privilege of supporting and caring for our students' lives, encouraging them to express whatever religious or spiritual commitment is important to them, and work with them all. Teresa fixed her eyes on me and gave no response. I went on. As a university chaplain, I'm charged with the responsibility of tending the soul of the university, engaging the big questions of meaning and purpose that are so much at the core of education these days. I find that students and sometimes faculty and staff come to talk with me about what they believe themselves, about the world, and often about God, but often out of sight behind closed doors. I am often quite moved by what they say, I said. Everyone was nodding, and I thought, okay, I'm now off the hot seat. 
But Teresa looked at me squarely and said, and how about you? Come again, I said. How about you? What do you believe? It was one of those moments when I could relate to what I suspect the exiles in Babylon were asked. Where is your God when the temple is gone? Where is your God now when your children have long since followed other gods? Where is your God now when the captivity has gone on much longer than anyone thought? And I imagine Teresa might have been asking, where was your God when my husband died and left me to raise four children on my own? What do you believe, chaplain? Well, I lifted a prayer and paused and then stepped out to state what might have, been, might have some currency in that circle. I don't know. I honestly don't know any more than you whether there is a God. Where I begin is with mystery. When I stand on a beach with billions of stars overhead, I encounter mystery. When I look at my hand, the way it's shaped like my dad's, but the skin is like my grandmother's, I experience mystery. Yes, you can read the world as a supreme accident of coincidences, but when I held my colleague's baby, a day old the other day, and I looked into her eyes drenched with the pools of birth, I touched mystery. It's haunting. It's magnificent. It defies explanation. Teresa held my eye and nodded ever so slightly, I went on. Mystery shows up in moments of deep connection. It also shows up in the pain of recognizing that this won't last forever. My mortality is also in there. It is a mystery how we've survived all these millennia to date. And it is, I believe, a loving God that holds it all and sweeps us off our feet with joy. And of course, we have a choice to dismiss it all. The coincidence of life is mere coincidence. The deep connections as hormones or plain old emotions. The mystery of your own life, where you came from, where you're going in old age, unanswerable questions that defy and lead us nowhere or somewhere, and I stopped. I realized I had started preaching, and that was not what they had bargained for. But as I sat looking around that room, I had the distinct feeling that all of us were exiles in some way. Like Isaiah's prophecy, we stand with the people who have waited very, very long for an answer to the question, where is your God? Like the generations that lived out the exile between chapter 39 and chapter 40 of Isaiah, those 160 years had left them in ruins. The social and theological core of a people had been overrun and the community scattered and the structures and assumptions that shaped the life of the people at that dinner table had in some ways come unraveled, and they feared what might be to come. Do you ever feel like you are living at a time when everything you once counted on is being swept away, and what is familiar is giving way to uncertainty? 
When the dream of a life is lost, we are like exiles driven deeply into the depth of our existence. When the stakes are very high, we, like Teresa, have the courage to ask the most pressing questions of our lives. Where are you, God? Have you forgotten us? Have you left, it to, left us to duke it out on our own? How long will you hide your face from us? Chaplain, what do you believe? And the people receive a resp surprising response, not from me, of course, but from the prophet Isaiah. Not dissimilar from God's response to Job when the poor soul had lost everything and wanted an explanation from God about what had happened. And though Isaiah 40 begins with comfort, by the time we get to verse 28, the tone changes to one of exasperation. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is an everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. This God does not magically arrive with a cure. This God isn't a genie in a bottle, but Yahweh is the creator of the very life that you are living. The prophet essentially turns the question, where is your faith? What is at the core of your belief? Do you mount up with wings like eagles or do you trip over feet of clay? Almost as if the writer realized that the exiles have lost their steam because the wait has been so long, the pace gears up and then gears down. The people are called to mount up with wings of eagles, but if that doesn't work, then at least try to run. And well, if running isn't in the cards, then walking and not fainting is the recipe. It sounds like aging and the reality of bad knees to me. But maybe what the prophet is saying is that in the reality of our lives, we more often stumble over our clay feet than soaring like eagles. And in the gospel lesson, the disciples also find themselves something in an exiled state as well. They're ready to have Jesus show his stuff to all the people. He is, after all, a superstar making waves in the early days of his ministry. And he's gone AWOL after the night prior when the whole city came to him for healing the sick and the demon-possessed. He slips away to a deserted place to pray. And I suspect many of us at Harvard understand the disciples' instinct when they came searching for Jesus so he could get back to business they thought was his, wondering why, when he was at the top of his game, the superstar, that he hid out in a quiet corner away from the pace. And we can imagine Simon's frustration. They're all looking for you, friend. You need to show them your stuff. But Jesus' response is that his calling, his business, is elsewhere. He needs to move on. Jesus was on a journey. And those who thought they could peg him down, who figured they knew where his journey would take him, knew the path to success, to deep fulfillment in life, had no idea that his feet were taking him to a cross. So those of us with clay feet could rest easy, run and not grow weary, walk and not faint. 
And so the message of both of these texts is that the power of God disrupts the pace of our lives. It comes into the weary, exiled life to a people who have a dim view of things turning out for the best and joins them with mounting eagle's wings. This maverick God challenges what is expected. This faith that is not understood by reading it or even volunteering it comes only with holy abandon, losing one's life to find it. Being infused with God life is a very countercultural way. Do we teach abandonment? Do we teach and preach and hold and tend and awaken to be met? I've seen this happen. We all know from the statistics around young adults in church these days that many young adults are suspicious, if not turned off, by the church. And those who aren't worried about their engagement in religious communities being misinterpreted. And yet, many of the young people I work with, and I suspect many of the young people who are in this room today, are longing for something that meets them. God, faith, and experience that holds before them the transcendent, the mysterious, something that piques their imagination, something so compelling that they will give their life to it. And sometimes these moments come with the unflinching engagement with suffering and pain, and at other times it comes in encountering that mystery that I spoke of to Teresa that night. But this longing for something to sustain and hold young adults comes especially powerfully when they have experienced great loss. I can think of many times when my door is open and a student comes tripping through the door, tears spill, stunned silence and low sobs, searching my face, eyes downcast, they are far from home, like captives in Babylon. And they speak of many exiles in their lives, the, the compromised health of a parent or a friendship that comes unraveled. And their question is, how will I live now that the ground of my being has a serious fissure in it? This touch with transcendence also comes when students receive affirmation beyond their wildest dreams, bursting through the door with the rush of fevered excitement, tipping their faces toward the stars, I got the job, or the A, or the internship, or forgiven. And when the light filters through the cracks in the fear or uncertainty, the wholeness of life, the great precision of who we were intended to be, receives the bounty of God's grace. I also have seen the air of transformation that I'm speaking of this morning in moments of institutional distress. When a whiteboard on a student's door in his dorm is littered with a, a racial slur, when a student insults a prominent political leader with religious bigotry or hatred, when a student is assaulted walking from the library to his house a block off campus. I've watched tears well in faculty members' eyes when she hears an alumnus of the college drown or when a colleague receives a bad diagnosis. 
all of these experiences could drive us to be holy cynics, casting aspersions on the whole damn mess. But I have to believe that a campus like this one, peopled with spiritual mavericks, who won't rule out even the most stricken human heart, even the most seething spirit, even the most despicable, disrespectful act, these people are agents of formidable change, mounting up like wings of eagles, walking wearily into the storm. Yet right in the midst of the shocking, sorry, pernicious moments on campus, right in the midst of the stunning, gracious, sweeping love that arrives, is the maverick of heaven who seems to arrive with unbridled goodness, holding the tears, fears, and hope itself as a gift to be carried from that gathering into the hard work facing each of us the next day and the next day and the next day on eagle's wings. That night in Costa Rica, we touched with a moment of holy heft, holding life around the table with sheer uncertainty that presses in on so many of us. We didn't finish the conversation, but as those at the table stepped out into the night, I knew that our stumbling feet of clay would take us across much uncertain terrain in our lives, but grasping the edge of eagle's wings might give way to soaring on the wings of the maverick of heaven, whose grace is mystery and whose purpose is love. This is our promise. This is our deepest hope. Thanks be to God. Amen.